0: Well, if there's one thing a minister probably can get trouble doing, it's preaching about politics. So, uh, today I hope I can stay out of trouble. Um, This sermon is not entitled, Chester Clark and Politics. It's simply entitled, The Bible and Politics, right? And so, um, as I share today, I will be sharing, of course, you'll be seeing some of of where I come from, but I hope that it's mainly you see how the Bible teaches we should relate as citizens, as inhabitants of a nation, as inhabitants of a country, as having to deal with the world in which we live. Uh, And the Bible does talk about that in our series that we've been on occasion when we have the opportunity looking at and from the book of romans we've learned a lot about the gospel we've learned a lot about the world we've learned a lot about the church and here in romans chapter 13 we're almost finished with the book of romans romans chapter 13 he talks about how we should relate to the authorities that we find in our lives so today we're going to be looking at that. We're going to be taking a look at Romans chapter 13. I want to assure you that this is not a, a, uh, a, 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 a sermon about the Bible and political parties. I am um, firmly convinced, more and more convinced, that neither of the parties or any of the parties, whether we're in America or in other countries, political parties in this earth do not have the answers to this earth's problems. There's one party, only one party, that has the answer. And um, that isn't a political party. In fact, it's a party that you and I are invited invited to. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. I want to be at that party. I don't know about you. But that party is going to solve this world's problems. And none of the other parties, the political parties that we see in this world, have a lasting, enduring solution to solve the problems. That doesn't mean we disengage. That doesn't mean we don't look for solutions, but we have a better solution coming, a final and eternal solution, the only eternal solution to this world's, world's ills. So let's bow our heads as we begin. Father in heaven, as we, as we open your word, we want to pray for your spirit to be here. We want to pray that your word would become clear to us, that we might see that there is something for us to do, And that you have a priority for us to focus on. That there is a responsibility that we have. Lord, just help us to understand how we can balance these things in the world in which we live. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we talked about how that marriage supper of the Lamb is the final answer, the the eternal answer to this world's problems. I want to be there. I hope that you want to be there. But if we're going to be there, we're going to have to take counsel from God's Word. Amen? We're going to have to see what does God's Word say to us, how ought we to live our lives while we're here on this earth. Because the Bible does say that we are to occupy until He comes, right? We are to be here as a part of this world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And how can we do that? Well, I believe that there are plenty of verses in the Bible that speak about how God has great desires. For the nations, not just for us as individuals, but for nations as well. Notice with me Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 34. It says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So if a nation would prosper, what does it need? It needs righteousness, right? That's pretty clear in the Bible here in Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 28 says, when a land transgresses, it has many rulers, a succession of rulers. There's instability. But it says, a man of understanding, with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. This is the English Standard Version. It's put into a little bit of a contemporary language if you can't tell. You can look that up in in your your translation and see exactly how it reads. But clearly the Bible is saying that there is a correlation between right principles and right government. Is that pretty clear? Can we see there is a correlation between right principles and right government? In fact, I want us to make make something very clear here. I believe, this is my personal conviction, that a nation is blessed not when its government is Christian, but when its people are Christian. Do you understand the difference between these two? You see, it's one thing for a person, for a government to say, we're a Christian government. There's a problem with that, and we'll look at some of that in here in just a minute. Um, There's a problem with that, but there's a totally different thing when its people, by their own convictions through their own experience, are living Christian lives. Now, we can't really have this discussion without making one thing very clear, and that is that I believe that there ought to be, and here in America there is, a separation between the powers of church and state. I believe that. I believe that's a biblical principle. Jesus said in Mark chapter 12 and verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. There's a problem when the government starts collecting our tithes or the church starts collecting our taxes. You understand what's, what's wrong with that? There's, there should be a distinction, a delineation between what is Caesar's and what is God's, what we owe to Caesar and what we owe to God. And by the way, there's also a responsibility, and I don't want to get too far into this, because I believe that as citizens, this could be a whole nother, a whole nother sermon, a whole nother subject. But I think we also have a responsibility, don't we? Not only to give the tithe to God, but to give a free will offering to help those who are in need. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit trail, but let me just tell you one thing. I think sometimes, sometimes in the Western world, the church has been at fault in relinquishing its social responsibility to help those in need solely to the government and giving up helping others. I want to tell you there's not the same blessing from paying your taxes to help those in need as there is from giving of your own free will. To help those who are in need, and God has said that true religion, and undefiled, is to help those who are in need. Right? The widows and the orphans, and those who are who are in so great need of help. And so, without going too far down that subject, I just want to make it very clear: I believe that we have a responsibility and an opportunity as citizens to render to under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's, and to give and to enjoy the blessing and the joy. Of giving to help others. So, as we see this separation between church and state, we recognize that an ethical population will lead to an ethical government. You understand, are you following? An ethical population will lead to an ethical government, but it's not necessarily true the other way around. An ethical government will not necessarily lead to an ethical or moral population. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because as a collective body, we can make decisions about what our government will be. But a government can never change at the very heart who its people are, who they are in their heart of hearts. There's only one power that can make people ethical and moral, and that is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? So, Jesus is the only one that can change this selfish, greedy heart of mine and make it it a heart that loves to give and loves to obey and loves the things of righteousness. It is the pulpit that holds the key to the restoration of ethics and morality in America, not the state. It's the pulpit. In times past, when the power of the pulpit waned, when truth ceased to be taught— and, the, and God's law was forgotten even by the church, the pulpit became so powerless to influence the populace that the church turned to the state to enforce morality. And that, my friends, will never bring about a godly society. History tells us that when the church combines with state in an attempt to enforce morality on the people, instead of the... Government being sanctified by the church, the church is corrupted by the government. That's what history tells us. It doesn't work for the church to bring about righteousness to a nation through the government. It must influence the people. The people bring about the change. What is needed is not a government that gives lip service to religious truth, but a, people's, a people whose hearts are converted by the truth and when when i hear pastors and preachers in this country and other countries claiming that society needs a government to enforce morality it is it is only conclusive evidence to my thinking that the power of the pulpit is not sufficient something's wrong the word of god is not changing hearts and lives as it should maybe we need to get back to the bible Maybe our preaching needs to be filled with the Word of God and with the Word of truth. Maybe we need to exalt the law of God and the righteousness of God, which in the end will transform a people to be more like God. What is needed is not a government that gives lip service, but a people who, gives, who give their hearts to Jesus Christ. The Bible has relatively, surprisingly, relatively little to say about how a government should be run, but a lot to say about how people should live their lives. Would you agree with me on that? I'm not saying there's nothing about how, uh, you know, authority should function in the Bible. I'm saying relatively, comparatively, there's little about how a government should be established and much more about how we as Christians ought to live our lives. Now, if we as Christians live as the Bible says, we will have an influence on the nation around us, won't we? We would if a people were to live as the Bible says they should, they would form a nation governed by biblical values. Not a nation that is intrinsically religious itself, but a nation of religious values people, people with religious values. So turn with me now with that sort of background behind what we're going to be talking about in Romans 13. I want you to turn with me there to our passage for today, Romans chapter 13, and we're going to begin with verse 1. We're going to look through, it's a short chapter, and so we're going to look through this. We're going to compare compare it with another passage, which is a similar passage in the writings of Peter, and we're going to see what is the real essence of what Romans 13 has for us today. Are you there? Romans chapter 13. Can you say amen? Amen. All right. Romans chapter 13, and we're going to read the first couple verses. It says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, this is something that's a little hard for us to understand. uh, You know, I've I've met some people who really don't agree with this, honestly. In fact, I think I've even met a few people who openly said, they don't agree with it. It couldn't be talking about our government because our government is full of corruption. I remember when I was a kid in Arkansas, there was some friends of mine who, um, they, were, they were an interesting, interesting folk. Um, I was best friend with... Um, with one of their boys, but they lived sort of a reclusive life, and they were a little bit uh, suspicious of the government. Today, we see more of that, I think, more probably even more than we did when I was a kid, but, but I remember one day, I was over at their house, and they said, we're going to go to this meeting, and we're going to go, we're going to hear about, about what we need to do as Americans, you know, and so they, we went to this meeting, and there was, in this house, I don't know, there was probably uh, 10 or 15, maybe 20 people, and they were gathered today, there's a flagpole outside the house, they had the flag flying upside down, you know what that means? It's a sign of distress. It's a sign of uh, you know that the you're I guess under attack or something. And they were they were like saying that America is under attack. America's under distress because of these you know humanists that have taken over the government and they've they've taken over our educational system and they've taken over our banking system. And and one of these guys who's a very interesting fellow he was he was what they call a sovereign citizen. Have you ever heard of a sovereign citizen? Well. Wow. Um, Sovereign citizens are people who don't have to obey the law, law, not the laws of the land today, you know. They say that they are only governed by the Constitution. If it's not in the Constitution, it's not there. They don't pay taxes because taxes, income taxes, are unconstitutional in their view. So, they don't pay taxes. And to become a sovereign citizen... They have a long process that you go through to become a sovereign citizen. Let me just give you a clue. The way you become a sovereign citizen is by <clears throat> making yourself so that the government doesn't care that you exist any longer. You have no income You have no property. (laughs) You have no... That's basically what it means to be a sovereign citizen. They revoke their birth certificate. I'm not sure how that works, but they somehow figured out a way to revoke their birth certificate. They don't have a Social Security card. They don't have a driver's license because the Constitution doesn't say you have to have a driver's license. And this is my country. I can drive here. They don't use... They tend to not use... currency by the Federal Reserve, because the Federal Reserve is just an evil corporation, it's not government, it's not federal, and it's not a reserve, and there's no gold there, and, and all the rest they'll tell you. They don't use currency, they'll, they'll try to pay in like gold coins or something. Um, um, they, they basically disappear off the radar screens, and, and they probably actually don't pay taxes because they probably actually don't make any money. That's really how it, how it works. This fellow is a sovereign citizen, and, and this, these people were flying their flag upside down, and they were saying, you know, America, we have, to, we have to take back America. And even as a kid, I sat back and I said, something's wrong with this picture. Something's wrong with this picture. I'm, I mean, are there problems in America? Absolutely, there are problems in America. And by the way, if we're looking for a, lay, a nation here on this earth with no problems, we're going to be sorely disappointed and die having not found it. Because the bad news is that there's not going to be any time, any nation, any government here on this earth that does not have problems. But it's also the good news is that God is going to set up a kingdom that lasts forever that is the country we're looking for. And as Christians, like like Abraham, we're looking not for our inheritance here on this earth. We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And so the problem with the sovereign citizens and these people who were who are who are all worked up in a lather about what about, well, the problems in America and how we're not going to submit to this, these governments and we're not going to pay our taxes, the problem is. The problem is they're looking for a utopia where they'll never find it. The problem is that they don't understand what Rome is trying to tell us. I rather presume that. When Paul wrote this, and Paul would have written this sometime about 57 and 58 A.D., I believe, uh, while he was in his third missionary journey while he was at Corinth. So when Paul would have written this, he was speaking to people who were, by the way, what's the name of the book? Do you think there was a government in Rome at that time? What was it called? (laughs) The Roman Empire, right? That's where it was seated. That's where it was headquartered. Now was the Roman Empire a godly empire, yes or no? It was not a godly empire. The Roman Empire this time was a, Imperial Rome was a pagan empire where many gods were worshipped, where many superstitions were held, where where immorality was rife, where the emperors themselves were worshipped as deity. In fact, many Christians would be tortured and killed because they refused to pay homage to the emperor as a deity. And yet Paul is saying to the Christians in Rome, listen, I want you to understand something. You need to be in submission to the government because it's a power ordained by God. Now that's very difficult, I would think. It would be difficult for for a Christian in Rome to look at Caesar and look at God and say, how? How? The point is, friends, the point is that God is a God of orderliness and organization. And although on this earth, earthly governments fall short of the standards of His government, He would still have us respect the authority that keeps order and organization in his universe and so here he says he says in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God therefore whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves now I want to I'm getting a little ahead of myself and my message today but I want to propose an idea and we're going to come back to it in a little bit I'm going to propose to you today that, that here we're not simply talking about how we should relate to changing our society. Paul is primarily talking about what should exist in our hearts. Listen to me carefully. I think Paul is primarily saying, look, as a Christian, we should not be in rebellion against authority. Do you understand that word, Rebellion. Do you understand, and I'm going to propose something to you, think about it for a few minutes, we'll come back to it. I'm going to propose to you that inside the human heart, there cannot simultaneously exist both rebellion and submission. Think about it. But I think what Paul is saying here when he says there's no authority except those that are ordained by God and if you resist the authority, the earthly authority, you're resisting the ordinance of God. I think there's a principle that we can can elucidate from that sentence, from that paragraph. When he says if you resist the earthly power, you're resisting God, I I think it's something that we can get great benefit from. You see, it's like this. If my heart is surrendered to Jesus, my heart is in a state of surrender. Does that make sense? And a heart that is in a state of surrender cannot have in it at the same time rebellion. Now, I've watched this over and over as a teacher. I've watched with parents. when young people, When young people become converted to Jesus Christ, it changes the way they relate to their authority figures in their lives. Over and over, I've seen it. Now, does that mean their parents are perfect and they always do exactly what? Listen, if your parents ask you to do something that's against or contrary to the Word of God, do you follow it? No, if, you're, if your heart isn't surrendered to Jesus, you don't obey your parents and disobey God, right? But you can do that without having rebellion in your heart. Do you understand what's going on here? If our heart is surrendered to Jesus, we don't have rebellion against those authorities that are placed in our life. So in a way, we can see whether we're really surrendered by how we relate to the authority figures around us. You see, it's easy easy for us to say, it's easy for us to say, well, yeah, I'm surrendered to Jesus. I mean, Jesus isn't here telling me what to do, or at least not in my face, and I'd say, I'm surrendered to Jesus. But I can tell how deep my surrender, how true my surrender is, by whether I'm willing to listen to the authorities that He has placed in my life. And so I used to tell my my students, when I taught high school, I used to tell my students, you know, your surrender to Jesus is just as complete as your submission to the authorities that God has placed in your life. Now, right now, it may be your teacher, your dean, or your parents, but guess what? There will always be. There will always be authority in your life. That's the way God has made this world. That's the way it's supposed to be. When you're out on your own, you have a boss. That boss is an authority figure in your life, right? Right? You know, when, uh, when maybe you're self-employed, you still have a nation, a laws, unless you're the president of the United States. And I think even then, there's supposed to be an authority, right? Um, there's supposed to be. All of us have opportunity to surrender, to sub, to submit to godly, rightful authority in our lives. So here we have the first passage. Here it talks about ordering, order and authority that it requires. That it requires is a part of God's plan for society. Look with me on to verse 3. For rulers are not a tear to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise for the same. Now, I'm not going to ask for any hands to be raised here, but anyone, does, do any of you have any um, natural incl- inclination to perhaps um, driving a little faster than you ought to? If you do, if you do, And don't ask me how I know about this, but if you do, then you know the reflex reaction that you have when you're coming down the highway and you see one of those patrol cars. What's the reflex reaction that you have? You're going to look for your brakes. Now, let me tell you a little secret. If you just drive the speed limit, You're not afraid to see a a police car on the highway. And that's exactly what Paul says here. If you don't want to be afraid of the authorities, just drive the speed limit. Well, he didn't quite say it that way. But he says, rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. If you don't want to be afraid of the authority, do what is good. You'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do do evil, um, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So God has placed authority in our lives. And the second principle that we see here in Romans chapter 13 is if we live in harmony with the law, we don't have to fear the law. We don't have to fear those who enforce the law. We don't have to worry about those citations for outstanding over-the-road performance that sometimes um, we're afraid of. So God has placed us in a, in a society with structure. And this is a structure that He Himself ordains. Therefore, verse 5, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for, what does He say? For conscience' sake. Even if you know you're not going to be caught, it's better to be honest on your taxes not just because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. God has placed us in this world as citizens with authority structures around us. And the Bible here is telling us how we as Christians ought to relate to it. Unfortunately, I hear a lot more of Christians saying, well, the government should do this rather than recognizing what we as Christians do ought to be doing. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility, and God has said it this way. We continue on with verse 6. Romans chapter 13 and verse 6, "'But because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor.'" to whom honor. So here we find that taxes and fees are to be paid honestly. That's not to say that we have to like them, it's to say that we have to pay them, (laughs) that we are responsible to that. Now, I'm sure that there were some in Rome who could have said, you know what, my government taxes that I'm paying are going to support vices that I can't conscientiously agree with. But Paul didn't say that we were responsible for withholding, right? He said, pay to all their dues, pay taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to customs, and honor to whom honor. Now, I want us to stop right here in our study of Romans 13, and I want us to look at a parallel passage. It's very interesting. If you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter, <clears throat> Peter, very interestingly enough, is writing this from Babylon. Have you ever, um, do you know where Babylon was? How was Peter writing this from Babylon? It's pretty clear that Babylon as a city was gone by the time Peter was writing. So, when he talks about Babylon, he's actually, most scholars, I believe, agree, he's actually talking about Rome. So, here he is in Rome, and he's writing about 60 to 62 A.D., so it's a few years after Paul's letter. And I have to wonder, if, Paul, if Peter hadn't read what Paul said. Because there's a very close echoing here and maybe even a further illumination of what Paul said in Peter's letter. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to begin with verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. This is what it says. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who, who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, But as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And he goes on, in the next few verses, he talks about even submission to masters. It's very fascinating as we look at the New Testament, because I believe the principles of the Bible, the principles of the New Testament, would absolutely, categorically be opposed to slavery. I believe that. And yet, Paul and Peter are riding in a society where slavery is the norm. And the point, I think, is not that we ought to endorse slavery, is that we ought to not have a rebellion in our hearts. I think that's the point of what Paul and Peter have to say. The rebellion doesn't belong in the Christian's heart. So he says in verse 18, "...Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults that you take it patiently? For, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God." For to this were we called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. If we simply stop for a moment, friends, and we look at how Christ was submissive to authority, allowing himself to be unjustly crucified, giving us an example. It's better for us to suffer wrongly than to assert our rights with rebellion in our hearts. That's the principle that Paul is trying to say. Now, I'm not, or Peter's trying to say, I'm not trying to say here, there's not a time to stand up for rights. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that God wants us to so live in such a way that rebellion is not a part of who we are. That we are following after the example of Jesus Christ that we can live in harmony with as much as possible with those who are around us. And so we find here that, that Peter has similar things to say. Um, we have an opportunity to look at Jesus as our example. If we continue on, <clears throat> we notice that uh, Peter continue, or Paul continues in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, turn with me back there and we're going to finish the chapter, the last few verses. Um, rebellion and surrender I believe, cannot simultaneously exist in the same heart, and so God wants us to learn the experience, to have the experience of uh, surrendering and having the peace that only surrender can bring. Look with me in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. We see here, it says, O no man anything except, what does he say? Except love. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall, not mur- you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Here we find that Jesus' words, when he summarizes the law, quoting from the Old Testament, On these two hang all the law and the prophets, right? He says, what's the first command, according to Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, is is Paul doing away with that first and great command of our Lord? No, he's focusing on the second one, because that's what Romans 13 is about. It's about how we relate to people, right? How we relate to those around us. How we relate to government. Now, how we relate to people. How we relate to people is by showing love. And the last six commandments summarize what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. We continue on. We see in verse 11 and 12, "...and do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The, day is, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light." Oh, friends, do you believe that if time was short for those believers in Rome, that it may be short for us again today? You know, some people say, well, you know, we don't know how long time will last. And I've heard young people say, you know, I don't think Jesus is coming that soon. The older I get, the more I live, the more I realize it doesn't matter. Even if I live to a ripe old age of whatever my... my uh, dna and lifestyle allows me to live i hope a long time even if i live to that good ripe old age it's a short life and now's the time now's the time for us to examine our own hearts for us to examine our own lives for us to awake from sleep and walk properly as in the day verse 13 continues he says let us walk properly as in the day um, not in revelry and drunkenness not in lewdness and lust not in strife and envy but put on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts make no provision for the flesh to fulfill this lust i would like to say As I look at Romans chapter 13, it raises the bar and gives a pretty high standard of how we are to live in this world, doesn't it? In fact, there's sometimes when I look at that and I think, how is that even possible? And I think that verse 14, the last verse, just a short verse, I think verse 14 is how this all is to be accomplished. It's by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. As our children's story this morning illustrated, it's by keeping our eyes on Jesus. As our special music this morning illustrated, it's by thinking about what He has done, how He related to the authorities in His life, how He related to the people around Him. The more we look at Jesus, the more we realize how we should live our lives. And Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. The state is rightfully powerless to convict and convert hearts. What we need here in Dalton, what we need here in America, what every nation struggling against a tide of immorality and ethical anarchy is spirit-empowered, truth-filled preaching from our pulpits that uplifts God's Word and His law and brings conversion through the power of His blood. This, my friends, will lead to families where God is honored and where morals and ethics are caught, not just taught. It will lead to fathers living an honest example and mothers teaching their children to live godly lives. It will bring communities where truth and justice is honored and where morality, honesty, and transparency are valued in leadership. Friends, I'm not here saying today that we should not as individuals be doing our civic duty. Not at all. That we shouldn't be involved in causes. Not at all. I'm saying our priority has got to be where God's Word says it should be. And that's making sure our hearts are right in the first place that our home altars have been built and restored, that our children are being taught, not just by the words that we speak, but by the lives that we live, what an upstanding and honest and ethical citizen is really all about. That, my friends, is what our community and our nation needs. How is it accomplished? But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To gratify its desires. I don't know about you, friends, but I want to have that personal experience. I want to have the right relationship with the authorities that God has placed in my life and the right relationship with others who may not be in authority positions. Romans 13 talks about both. And I want to make the community that I can influence my home, my neighborhood my town, yes, even my country, a better place because the principles of Jesus Christ have been inculcated into my heart and are being lived out in my life. Is that your desire today? Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, you've given us a great responsibility. Sometimes we try to change things that you've not given us full control over when we have neglected The areas that you have given us full control and responsibility for and that's our own hearts i pray lord that each one here might have the experience of a surrendered heart lord whether they're young or old boy or girl man or woman child or adult each one of us need that experience the peace that comes from surrendering our lives to the authority especially the authority of Jesus and the authority of His Word. And Lord, when we do that, You you help us to sort out our relationships with the other authorities as well. And I pray that from this church, there might be an influence that would strengthen this community, that there might be an influence that would bring ethics and morality and transparency and honesty into the daily transactions that take place in Dalton that we might be salt in this world and, and light in this town and that this nation might be prospered not because of specific laws that it enacts, but because of hearts. The hearts of its people have been drawn closer to You. I pray that You would help us to live in such a way that we would be seen as followers of Jesus Christ, that we might put on The Lord Jesus Christ, that we might not make provision for the flesh, but that we might instead demonstrate to the world what Jesus would do if He were here. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse,